Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue in our series on the book of Genesis called He Made Me Human, and we continue the rest of Cain and Abel's story in Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 16. So let's listen in to this new message called Understanding Man's Inhumanity. A recent issue of Time magazine included an article entitled, Here's What Happens to the Brain When People Kill. Let me read the opening paragraph of the article. It said, Evil isn't easy. Say what you will about history's monsters. They had to overcome a lot of powerful neural wiring to commit the crimes they did. The human brain is coded for compassion, for guilt, for a kind of empathic pain that causes the person inflicting harm to feel a degree of suffering that is in many ways as intense as what the victim is experiencing. Somehow that all gets decoupled, and a new study published in the journal, and they give the journal name here, Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience, that journal brings science a step closer to understanding exactly what goes on in the brain of a killer. The article went on to explain that a center in the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex is an area of the brain known to be involved in moral judgments and in making choices in how we behave. Now, none of that research should surprise readers of the Bible. When God created man in his image, he created him with a moral compass, and he surely hardwired that moral compass into our physiology and the way the Creator mapped our brains. But with the fall in which we spiritually died and became estranged from our Creator, the way in which our physiology now works becomes twisted and broken. Nothing now works exactly in the way that it was designed. And so in a broken world, we find it possible to, as Time Magazine said, to decouple our natural wiring, preventing us from doing evil, and we can murder. When we last left off, Cain was in the throes of temptation. Sin was crouching at the door, seeking to master him. Cain stood at the verge of no longer caring for the humanity of his brother and viewing him only as an object of hatred. Let's see what happens to Cain right after his conversation with God. Genesis 4 verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See, what strikes us here is the act seems premeditated. It went from a temptation, from a sin crouching at his door, which he could have mastered, to an actual act. James 1, 14 and 15 describes the process. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, James describes a progression. The first step is temptation, and it's desire that gives rise to temptation. For Cain, his envy of his brother led to an overwhelming desire to be rid of him. Then the desire to murder was played and, and replayed in his brain, allowing the desire to grow gradually, decoupling the wiring God had placed into his brain that would not allow such an act, and gradually the natural revulsion of murder, accompanied by the horror and guilt of doing such a thing to his own brother, slowly began to wane as his brain shifted to only considering the advantage of finally having his brother out of the way. Now that would have taken time. Finally, the desire was ready to be birthed. His mind was now prepared, and Cain gave birth to murder. The Bible says he spoke to his brother, let's go out into the field. 
Perhaps he convinced Abel to come and and look at his harvest, or perhaps he convinced him that the, the two simply needed to spend time with each other. By then, all feelings of pity had been banished. Sin has mastered him. And so coldly and without hesitation, he rises up and kills him. But how did he do that? Did he strike him with a stone or did he use some form of tool designed for farming? You know, of course, we're not told, but but later in the book of Joel, Joel speaks of those who would beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. You know, it may be that in the early days of life, technology developed quickly, allowing implements of farming to be transformed into weapons. But however Cain did it, it seems clear that by this time, he had invited his brother into the field, and he had already decided exactly how it is that he would kill him. No one had done such an act before, and he may even have amazed himself at how able he was to devise such a plan. And he seems to have done it with a remarkable degree of efficiency. So let's keep reading our text. Genesis 4 verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, it seems from reading this text that Cain was entirely unremorseful. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to confront them, they run and they hide. They couldn't hide their shame, but Cain doesn't run and hide. He simply stares at God and lies. I don't know where he is. After all, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for his comings and goings. Cain is a cold-blooded, unremorseful liar. And since that time, the phrase, my brother's keeper, has become a recognizable phrase. To be our brother's keeper is to suggest that we are responsible for our fellow man. In Romans 12, verse 20, the Apostle Paul even went as far as to command that if our enemy is hungry, we must feed him. See, God commands us to look out for one another. We are our brother's keeper. But of course, as we know, Cain is not really interested in his obligation to his brother. It is not obligations that fill his imagination. It is rather the murder of his brother that consumes him. You know, and since Cain's time, the the world has become full of unremorseful killers. You know, right now in the Middle East, the Islamic State fighters are beheading their victims and releasing horrifying images of their actions, all the while feeling that the more they do it, the more they will inspire other young men to join in their wake and do the same. Murder brazenness, callous disregard for the feelings of compassion that God has hardwired into our brains is now decoupled and in its place a cruel disregard for the image of God in the beings that God has made. The world is now full of Cain's descendants. We've just gone through the most murderous century in human history with unspeakable horror, the 20th century, and I have no reason for believing that this century we're now in will be any different. Indeed, this century has already begun with ominous tones. But murder in the text in Genesis and in the world never goes unanswered. Even when murder is not answered by means of human justice, murder demands a response from God. God is never silent over murder. Let's continue to read verses 10 to 14. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. 
I shall be a fugitive and I wander on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There are several elements in this condemnation. The first is the statement that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. His blood has not been swallowed by the earth and is forgotten. Murder is not forgotten. Revelation 6 verse 10, the martyrs are depicted under the altar, those who have been slain for the word of God. Text says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And to them the answer is given that they must wait a little while longer. But in that answer is the assurance that God does not ignore the spilling of innocent blood. You know, in the books of the law, which make up the first five books of our Bible, and in the Near Eastern society around Israel, there developed the idea of the avenger of blood. In order not to allow murder to stand, strong men would arise and avenge the blood of the innocent. Whenever a person would kill someone else, the victim's nearest relatives would rise up, pursue the killer when they found him, and would be free from prosecution. The Old Testament law made a distinction between murder that was intentional and that which was non-intentional. Imagine someone strikes someone with a hand in order maybe even to hurt them, but not to kill them, and that person dies. That would be murder, but it was not the intent to kill. Now contrast that with intentional murder. Numbers 35, 16 to 19 says, But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. You know, when we come back, we're going to see that this practice must have developed at the very beginning of the human story. Cain seems aware that this might happen to him, and suddenly he realizes that no action can live without the consequences. Murder never goes without an answer. We're going to see that more when we come back. The first premeditated murder in history took place with Cain's fateful blow to his brother Abel. The life of an innocent man made in God's image had just been taken, and now the murderer would be faced with unimaginable consequences. We recognize that this act originated with Cain's failure to defeat the sin of envy and hatred that lay crouching at his door. But God was not done with Cain just yet. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld sheds more light on what this story reveals about God's mercy in spite of such a heinous act. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss a day. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and your convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video. And you can subscribe to our ministry podcast, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. All the details to be found at backtothebible.ca. Our desire is to provide Bible teaching you can trust to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support these Bible teaching efforts, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Those of you who know your Old Testament well will know that murderers, according to Old Testament law, could flee to a city of refuge where a trial would be held for them. If the murder were judged to be unintentional, then the accused would be protected in the city of refuge. But if not, the avenger of blood was given permission to put the murderer to death. But those series of events or those laws which became codified in the Old Testament were not yet in play. This was still a very early part of the human story. And Cain is more than aware that among his many brothers were those who loved Abel, and they would be breathing out revenge. His initial claim that he knows nothing about Abel's death has now been discredited, and the crying out of Abel's blood demands a response to injustice and murder. One can only imagine the discussion that went on among Adam and Eve's many children. And so Cain is overwhelmed, not with a sense of remorse, but fear that the violence he has begun is not yet done. It will now come to visit him. It seems quite likely he had not foreseen what his crime would produce. Those seeking retribution would be coming, and so God tells him that he's cursed. Adam and Eve were cursed by being thrown out of the garden. Cain is cursed by being thrown off the land he farmed. Evidently, he must have thought that he'd be able to defend himself on his own property, but if he becomes a wanderer, he'll never be able to establish a place of self-defense. He will never know when it is that he will encounter the avenger of blood. Furthermore, how can he survive on the earth? If he is being driven from his land, what will be his source of income? How will he feed himself? He is being cursed. Even if he survives, he'll live a life of poverty. Remember that Cain was a farmer, a worker of the soil. Cain is terrified at the thought of trying to survive in a fashion which must have included being a hunter and gatherer, something he'd never done. How can he survive as a restless wanderer? Finally, Cain is told that God will curse the ground under his feet and that the ground will no longer produce good crops for him. He's being cursed to a life of poverty. He will constantly be looking over his shoulder to see who's coming after him. And when he flees to another place, he'll struggle to make ends meet. He will become a woeful figure. God has condemned him, and and Cain cries out to God for mercy. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, if you see nothing else in this text, you should at least see the most amazing element. God actually protects Cain the murderer. He doesn't put him to death. He rather places a mark of protection on him. It can feel frustrating to read this because we might think this passage should tell us about a God being a God of law and order, a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And we do know that later on in Genesis 9, verse 6, God will make a new law and it will say, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Now, why does God mandate capital punishment several chapters later? And yet here he does not. Now, anyone reading the whole Bible will be caught up in two seemingly conflicting themes. As one Bible teacher said, God holds justice in his right hand and mercy in his left. And that's what we see in God's dealings with Cain. On the one hand, 
God is angry with Cain because his act of worship and sacrifice is unacceptable, and yet God is merciful in that he encourages him. If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Then God sees Cain in temptation and seeks to warn him. Sin is crouching at the door, and that's precisely what he does here. God does curse Cain and drive him from his home, and yet he protects him, offering him time to come to terms with the enormity of his sin. And so this is the story of grace and mercy. But there's another drama that begins being played out here as well. If God had allowed one of Adam and Eve's sons to execute vengeance in a day in which no laws regarding murder were yet established, their act would not have been one of justice, but one of vengeance, which might have led to murder upon murder, which might have well consumed the family of Adam and Eve. See, God immediately moves in to protect the value of human life and moderates the response that might have destroyed them all. And and there's still one more lesson that we want to learn from this tragic account of the murder of Abel. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews. The passage I'm about to read contrasts the glory of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament law to the glory of a new kind of mountain. I'm reading Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, hear me now, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I hope you listen to that. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, why is that? Because it's better blood. The blood of Abel, the blood of an innocent murdered man, cries out from the ground. It cries vindication. It cries justice. It it cries vengeance. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of an innocent murdered man, cries out from the cross. It cries out mercy. cries out reconciliation. It cries out forgiveness. It cries out peace with God. Hear me. That is better blood. That's Christianity versus the law. It's the difference between demanding justice and bringing grace to those to whom no mercy is earned or deserved. That is the Christian faith. See, anyone can call for justice, and justice is important. All of us feel we've been victimized, and many of us have. There are those among us whose spouses have left and sinned against you. There are those among us who have been cheated out of money. There are those among us who have seen loved ones even murdered. Do you want to be a follower of Christ? Hear the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. That's better blood. Murderers deserve condemnation. That's what the Bible teaches. And in the end, every murderer and every transgressor and every sinner will face the bar of God's justice. Cain will not have gotten away with murdering his brother. He, too, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where he will give an account for the things done in the flesh. But murderers, while they deserve justice, actually need mercy. You know, one of my favorite stories comes from Victor Hugo's famous book, Les Miserables. Jean Valjean, the subject of the novel, has spent 19 years in prison and and upon release has been taken up for the night in the house of a bishop. 
And in the middle of the night, Valjean wakes up and and steals two expensive candlestick holders and puts them in a bag and, and heads out into the night, only to be caught by the police. The police return Valjean to the house of the bishop, and they ask the bishop if these are his candlesticks. And the bishop says, no, he has given them to Jean Valjean. And then he says to the confused Valjean, why didn't you take the silverware as well? For I had also given that to you. And then the police leave and Valjean is left alone with a bishop who tells Jean Valjean with these candlesticks, it is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from the black thoughts and the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. Do you have problems with God offering grace to Cain? Those of you who know the rest of the story will say, well, uh, but, but Cain's family turned out to be violent and godless. Yes, but that still doesn't answer the question, does it? Do you have problems with God offering grace to Cain? Grace is offered in the midst of sin. And when grace is accepted, a man is reconciled to God. And when it is refused, a man is declared to be overwhelmingly sinful for he has refused that which is the most precious of all commodities. And that is the story of Cain. And with him, the sad history of the human race begins in earnest. Now, as we continue on in this series, we're going to see that God will safeguard his plan to continue to bring mercy in a world racked by sin. John, thanks again for another great message. And it brought up something that maybe I hadn't thought about before. Do we feel resentful about the fact that Cain received mercy? And I think, you know, even today, is there opportunities that we're resentful of other people because they need justice and yet they've received mercy? Yeah, it's the whole nature of the the Christian faith, isn't it? I mean, Jesus with the man on the cross next to him, you know, and uh, offering mercy to a killer that was being crucified beside him. I mean, the entire Christian gospel is all about receiving that which we did not deserve. I mean, Christ on the cross receives that which he does not deserve, which is, of course, punishment. And we receive that which we do not deserve, which is, of course, mercy and forgiveness. But I think when we have difficulty with forgiving the individual who is clearly guilty, I think we have difficulty with the gospel itself. So I think we've got to get our minds around that and and rejoice that God is merciful. What a powerful and insightful look at this familiar story from Genesis. It's revealed to us many things about the reality of our world, about sin, judgment, human nature, and of course, the great mercy and compassion of God. Even as we've looked at the inhumanity of man through the example of Cain, we've also discovered what the shedding of Abel's blood points to, that the blood of Christ shed on the cross is the hope for mankind. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues his series in He Made Me Human. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's Word that we might become a people for His glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. 
Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.